Hello, and welcome to the Homeland Podcast. Step out to find out it's wet and warm, wet and warm. Tra-la-la, 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 tra-la-la. Hey everyone, Bryce Merriman here. A few Saturdays ago, I was able to participate in a student-led panel discussion on homelessness at the University of Washington. The format of the day was that each panelist was to give a brief introduction of our own perspectives on homelessness. And the first person to speak is who we're gonna hear from today, Anitra Freeman. What was amazing to watch was how in her 10 minute discussion, Anitra shared her story and expanded it to encompass discussions about the importance of community, the origins of dignity, and the hostility of the built environment to those experiencing homelessness. When she was done speaking, I was certain of three things. The first was that Anitra's perspective was likely the most important one that the students would hear that day. The second was that she helped reorient some of my own thinking about homelessness. And the third was that if she was willing, her story was one that the listeners to this podcast should absolutely hear. In re-listening to the recording of our conversation, what stands out is just how broad Anitra's perspectives and insights are. It also reminds me that so many of these themes deserve deeper reflection and consideration, which I hope to give them during some future episodes. But for now, I hope you'll accept the invitation to listen to and reflect on Anitra's story as she tells it. Let's let's start with you. Let's start with your story okay. and how it intersects with homelessness. All right. Well, uh, I have had uh, bipolar disorder, mood disorder, uh, all all of my life, cycling between being very active to not active at all, mm-hmm. not doing anything at all, and. For most of my life, I, during what I now know were depressions, I couch surfed and lived with friends, friends or family, uh, mostly on the couch. But uh, as I grew older, I uh, had broken off more and more relationships, and it got harder and harder to get back to work after you know a depression with a long erratic work history, and the depressions were getting worse. So in 1995, I went through a very long, a year-long depression, ran out of couches, became officially homeless, out on the street homeless. Uh, Stumbled around for a while in the great gray fog, doing the usual uh, things that, you know, used my last few dollars to stay up all night in a coffee shop, back when we had all night coffee shops, Uh, ride all night on the buses, back when some of the buses ran all night. Uh, I spent one night out at the airport, pre-911, you could do that. Hmm. And finally stumbled into a, a homeless shelter where there was a mental health outreach worker 
because Seattle was one of the few first places to realize that people in the state that I was in were not going to find the mental health office. So they sent outreach workers out to where homeless people were. Some of them even went under the bridges, you know, and out around the kingdom that still existed. And uh, the outreach worker, uh, Debbie Shaw, was able to get me onto treatment, uh, get me onto disability, and I'm now on Social Security, got me into housing within uh, four months. But in the meantime, I had, uh, after just one week of the uh, lithium that I was taking, I was feeling perky enough that I could not stand being looked after by staff for one more night. I wanted to be a grown-up again. And I could see the walls now and saw that there was a flyer for self-managed shelter. Mm -hmm. And it turned out again, Seattle was a pioneer in having a highly organized uh, homeless community, and including uh, homeless and formerly homeless men and women who organized the network of self-managed shelters and, and other, some other resources like storage lockers. And uh, I got involved with that. Through Share, I got involved with Share. Uh, Share is. Cher. Cher is this network of, of uh, homeless, formerly homeless shelters and other resources. Uh, also, a self advocacy group, a political advocacy group. Share stands for Seattle Housing and Resource Effort, but you don't have to worry about that. <laughs> Everybody just calls it Share. Uh, or share wheel because there's a partner organization wheel which stands for women's housing equality and enhancement league and you don't have to worry about that because everybody just calls it wheel <laughs> uh, and that's homeless and formerly homeless women who uh, focus on you know mostly on women's issues but also uh, support the tent encampments, uh, do, which, which Sharon will do, and, uh, and since uh, 2000 have stood a silent vigil whenever anybody homeless dies outside or by violence anywhere in King County. And uh, since 2003 has been creating physical memorials for homeless, homeless people who have died. Mm -hmm. uh, so I got a by and 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 I got involved with Real Change, which is a street newspaper. It's sold on the street by vendors, uh, most of them homeless and low income vendors, who buy the paper for thirty cents a copy. 60 cents a copy now and sell it for two dollars a copy and who also uh, are very involved in the in every part of the running of the paper and uh, and you more and more so 
Uh, and especially the advocacy. Uh, so by the time I got into housing, I had this huge social network, the, the biggest community I'd had in my life because now I was stable. Uh, and, you know, when, when you're cycling between mania and depression, it, it breaks up. Uh, relationships, interrupts relationships, interrupts projects. So uh, during that four months, I was for once continuously in relationship. So I really, by the time I got into housing, this homeless community was my community, but in many ways it was my very first community. Mm. And uh, so I stuck with it. And I'm convinced that it is this great big social network that also kept me stable. That a lot of people uh, get into housing and then drop out again, and in and out, and revolving door. Um, and uh, a number of uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure what number of people, because I only have only shared anecdotal remembrances with various people. There are people who get into housing after a period of homelessness and then die. Because that, that transitional period is actually pretty stressful right. uh, for a lot of, a lot of reasons. But but I had support. Right. I, I had the support. So I've stayed. I have stayed uh, involved. And that, that story is so powerful in that it flips the traditional narrative on on its head about where community comes from and what home actually means. And typically, I think we, you know, the the, the American dream, the quote unquote American mm-hmm. dream, is you buy a home in a stable neighborhood. And that becomes your community. But for you, your story is completely flipping it on its head. First of all, there's no ownership. (laughs) (laughs) But it was finding this social network and the people who you could connect to first Mm -hmm. as that first ingredient of home. And then you were able to find housing. How how typical is that of an experience? It's in, well, you know, uh, there are still homeless people who are isolated out in the bushes or the alleyways and who've never heard of, of Share or Wheel or or uh, or any of the other uh, you know, missions or support groups uh, or real change or any of that. They're still isolated. So, but there is a community of 600 or more uh, the the ones that I know uh, who have who come through uh, tent encampments or or share shelters or wheel projects or real change uh, they you can watch a transformation 
you can, you can see it. People come in with what I call a gray pavement look on their faces, or mm-hmm. you know, doing the homeless shuffle, your head's down, just kind of shuffling along. And they, you know, uh, get involved in some group and at some point say something and see other people listening to them. And it's like a light going on. And it, and it is that uh, that recognition, that human recognition of your own dignity, right. and that that's energizing, and the relationships that you form. Those are the things that empower people to start to actually remake their their lives. Right. It, I mean, it, it seems like that that question of um, a, a reflection of oneself and, and someone else, and I think in your case also that sense of the purposefulness, mm-hmm. um, those things become really important. Yeah, uh, it, people feeling like they're actually doing something that makes a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is is tremendously important. Um, I, there there are several things that frustrate me <laughs> in in uh, in the <clears throat> standard uh, social service treatment of homeless people, or a standard bureaucratic uh, notions about homeless people. One is this notion that. Uh, Living in a house is dignified. Living in a tent is not. That is not, it's, it's demeaning to human dignity to be living in these tiny houses or these tents or, you know, in a sleeping bag. And yet, or in a shelter. And yet, dignity is not given by your housing status, your clothes, your physical possessions. In fact, you know, uh, being homeless does not uh, immediately bestow sainthood, <laughs> but there is a, a spiritual benefit you can get out of it if you, if you make use of it. You can form an identity that does not depend on your material well-being, mm-hmm. on your material belongings. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I've seen this happen over and over with people. And one woman actually telling me, you know, I've, I've suddenly realized that my self-worth does not depend on having a house. Mm-hmm. So it's, you actually get a greater sense, you know, a more solid sense of self-worth in, in a little tent if you have a community that you're uh, making a contribution to, or you feel, you know, needed and wanted mm-hmm. and and respected, you can have more dignity in that situation than you're living alone in your house and you're cut off from your family and everybody in life hates you and you drink yourself to sleep every night. You know, that's not dignity. Uh, 
dignity depends on these non-material things mm. that and they are things that you can have in <clears throat> a shelter or etc uh, sometimes you're denied them in some uh, staffed shelters because you're treated like uh, an infant who who needs to be told everything and you are not allowed to make your own choices about anything and not when to go to sleep at night when to wake up in the morning what to eat you know uh, you don't have much control over what you wear either because you have to carry everything you own uh, on your back so uh, there are there are shelters that claim to be providing dignity because people have a real bed and they have showers and laundry and you know the place is nice and clean and there's good food to eat but if it's completely regimented and you're treated like an infant that's not dignity so and then uh so that's <laughs> one of the frustrations uh and i got really hung up on that one and forgot the other two but i'm sure i'll remember well I, one question that that it brings up to me is I mean, everything that you mentioned about dignity and community you know about having purpose connection mm -hmm. autonomy oh, responsibility oh, oh. i remember one more okay, thing <laughs> okay one of the other things is uh every now and then somebody decides to bitch that uh share is forcing people forcing homeless people into political activity when you know homeless people don't need to be doing political activity homeless people need to be seeing to their own survival uh, well for one thing we don't force anybody into political activity but darn well we do encourage it and it is part of the the strength of of the program it's part of what gives people that zest mm -hmm. because uh they're, you know, educated in in share mm -hmm. uh, to realize that, you know, that homelessness is a structural problem. Mm -hmm. It's it's a systemic problem, and we've got to change the system right. to really end homelessness. We can tell you know you can you can get out of homelessness, and the other guy can get out of homelessness. But to change homelessness, it changes, you know, things so that nobody, you know, or, you know, the majority of people, <laughs> so we don't have an epidemic, uh, is going to take changing the system. It's going to take economic justice. And uh, so, and so we have uh, people going and speaking to City Hall of, about, a $15 wage and about uh, the the income tax proposal and about funding more, you know, funding more housing and about funding more shelter because without shelter people die. And that's all 
energizing. It's, it's part of giving people a life and a sense of being part of their community. And, uh, and it's very, <clears throat> to me, it's very demeaning to say that, uh, never mind, dear, you don't have to be doing that. You, you take care of your, uh, go to the doctor. Okay. Here, I'll give you the appointments that you do need to do. <laughs> right. That's very demeaning. Yeah. Well, it gets to the question that I wanted to ask, which is that it, it seems like time and time again the story is a person has to break or be pushed away from an existing community yeah. in order to, however you want to phrase it, hit bottom, mm-hmm. find, find a different community, find a new community. And when you start talking about breaking the cycle and not having an epidemic, one thing that I'm interested in is how do we not let people break those bonds of their existing communities mm-hmm. so quickly? And are there things that we can do with zoning codes, with mm-hmm. the built environment that makes it easier for people to stay where they have connections mm-hmm. and they aren't economically priced out. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, there are several things tying into that. Um, one is some, there are, part of the problem is the stigma of, homelessness, uh, the stigma of poverty that we've got in this country. One of the men in the shelter where I stayed, the share shelter where I stayed, it was a co-ed shelter, by the way, um, he, he used to be a uh, lab, lab tech, and he injured his back. He couldn't work, and he was trying to get, uh, go through rehab, and and uh, they would buy him a suit for. They'd send him to the doctor, physical therapy. They'd buy him a suit to go to interviews, but they wouldn't provide him with a place to stay. So he was staying in the homeless shelter while he went through all this. But he used to be a pillar of his church. He was deeply involved in his church, and he helped out a lot of people. When he became homeless, he dropped out of his church. He went away. He didn't talk to anybody because uh, he, he couldn't stand having to ask for, having to be the one asking for help. He couldn't stand being ha, being seen as homeless and needy after being you know one of the you know strong people that, that, so that internal sense of shame or failure yeah. or right. prejudice yeah right okay. and uh, I saw him a, a few years later and he had gotten back on his feet and he was now part of the church again <laughs> <laughs> It was working again. Now he can be part of the church. Right. Yeah, but it, 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 yeah, it's sad. So sometimes uh, 
So one of the things that we need to do in order to prevent uh, communities from being broken apart is to change that stigma, uh, that stigma image. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, both uh, internally for people who are homeless and, and externally for everybody who's housed. I have sometimes said the, uh, we will only get people who are housed to stop judging others on the basis of their material possessions when we get them to stop judging themselves on the basis of their material possessions. And and really, that's what my my friend, the lab tech, was going through. Uh, he lost his sense of self-worth because he'd lost his job. Uh, he lost his job and his housing and, and uh, everything he identified with as prosperous, as successful. And... Uh, so, you know, we, uh, it's a big job, <laughs> you know, convincing a capitalist society to stop judging uh, themselves and each other on the basis of, of material possessions. But, you know, it's the most basic change that needs to be done. But there are, you know, but there's also the, the little bitty steps in that um, that are that are easier that are simply propinquity uh, uh, when every time that we move uh, a tent encampment or a shelter uh, into a new neighborhood we go through <laughs> you know, the, the same uproar <laughs> uh, you know, the the uh, you know filthy criminal drug addicts are going to eat my dog and rape my child. Yeah, uh, and every time that we go ahead and go there, and just be ourselves. Uh, things change, be, especially if you have you know projects that you you. You join in the neighborhood cleanup, or you create a neighborhood cleanup and invite everybody to join you. Um, and just even just uh, the the moves, you know, I, I've uh, seen people participating, you know, helping out during the move of a shelter and and changing their attitudes, changing just while you watch, just in, you know, the people that they're dealing with aren't what they expected, yeah. you know? And, um, you know, you, you get up in the morning and get a cup of coffee and go out to the bus stop, and there's this other guy who's got a cup of coffee at the bus stop, and he's from the shelter. Yeah, and then you chat. Yeah, uh, and you know, it turns out you both like the Mariners. <laughs> Who knew? <laughs> uh, so, so 
creating an environment where people mingle more right. is an essential part of that of that change of breaking down the stigma of of uh, you know seeing you know we are both part of the same tribe. But it seems like it seems like so much of our society is set up to not do that. Exactly. I mean, and from from zoning laws, which you know, your lot size is basically a proxy for income, mm-hmm. um, to the way we shape our recreational spaces. You can pay for your country club membership, or you can go to the public pool yeah. or the community center. And many times, those are two different income groups. Mm-hmm. So how do we begin to, to build those bridges? I mean, I, the transit stop is a great object lesson for the community here in Seattle, which has a lot of transit users of all income brackets, mm-hmm. but not every community is like that. How do yeah. we begin to, to build those bridges? Well, uh, that's a challenge you give the kids. One of the is to actually create transit hubs where you can sit down and and hang out and and other you know parks just little spaces there's there's this uh, little space down at second and Marion I, I think or third third and Marion third and spring. Third and Sprint. Um, there's just this little space. There's kind of a, a mall. There are a number of stores. But there's this big open space with with uh, benches. And, and in good weather, people hang out there. You know, and they got their lattes and, and brias sandwiches. And, but... Uh, and and maybe you know if they all look well dressed and somebody who feel, feels rather ragged would feel uncomfortable there. But uh, I, while I was homeless, I still had the the armor of uh, my speech patterns and you know my technical background and uh, and I I could you know pass for a computer programmer on a day off and um, I could hang out there and check. I had to pretend not to be hungry which, you know, which was sometimes tough but uh, but it was a place where I could hang out and talk to other people from the same world that I used to be in right um but they wouldn't know. I mean, part no. of your armor was them not knowing. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I I went through. Uh, I had I had one experience. Of, uh, I'd chosen stay, to stay out from shelter one night because a friend was uh, in a play, and so I I wanted to go see the play, and then I hung. <clears throat> out afterwards, and there was this buffet and and mingling and talking, etc. And I hung on, you know, after that to help clean up because I don't have any place to go. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sleeping out. 
tonight. Um, so I, I helped out, and and the woman that I'm working and chatting with looks at this buffet and says, "Oh, I wish I knew where to take all this food." And I, and I said, well, the women down at Angela and so would love to have it. Uh, you know, they hardly ever, you know, uh, at that time, there were no regular meals at Angeline's. You ate when somebody donated stuff. Angeline's the day center uh, for homeless women. And uh, so I, I explained all that. And she looked at me and said, oh, do you work down there? Mm. And... And I said, I am one of the women in Angelina. Her eyes changed. And I was suddenly a poor homeless woman mm-hmm. instead of a fellow, you know, whatever. So I began talking about the same thing. Yeah, but I just, so I started talking about the same things that we've been talking about, and I kept talking, and I kept talking, until her eyes changed back. Mm. And and in a way, I say that that's my mission in life from then on. (laughs) Make people's eyes change. (laughs) Yeah. Good mission. But, so, yeah, if, if, at the times I stopped uh, on those benches, I I was tired and wasn't quite in the mood to go through the whole exercise of, of dealing with, you know, I'm homeless and then talking and talking and talking. Uh, but, yeah, maybe there is... I wish, wish, I'd like to create more opportunities for people to work together on mutually uh, supportive projects, mm. like cleaning up the neighborhood, uh, like, you know, building uh, you know, uh, an amenity for the park. Mm. Or, or something because that's a trigger. That's a, we're uh, we've got a couple of very primitive triggers, and and they're both just as easy. There's uh, you're competing with me for a resource. You're endangering a resource. Therefore, you are other, and I must destroy you or drive you out or whatever. And then there's, you are aiding, you are a necessity for my survival. You're contributing to my survival. You're my tribe member. I share food with you. (laughs) And um, so, you know, we have these constant messages that, uh, that homeless people are a drain on, on, the community that uh, all this money is being poured into uh, homeless services and nothing's happening. Um, that poor poor people are stepping on your pocketbook. I have all of those messages, and and those are what 
contributes to the whole, you know, <laughs> cementing the whole system. But, uh, but it's, it's just as, you know, you can flip that switch so easily just by getting, you know, two people working together on, you know, clearing up a stuck drain, you know, something. Um, so, yeah, but it, you know, it, it's just occurring to me, uh, sitting here as I'm trying to think of it, that our our uh, urban culture is almost phobic about people doing things for themselves. <laughs> about about I mean about. A group about you know the neighborhood getting together and you know uh, cleaning up the the mm. roadway or you know the the neighborhood getting together and and doing anything. Why you know, do you think that is? Well, you know, if I were cynical, I'd say it was <laughs> designed that way. <laughs> but I I think it's one of those things where. Uh, it's a natural effect of the system that perpetuates the system. Uh, you know, the the natural effect of the of a capitalist system is to try to turn everything into uh, something that can be done for money, and uh, and and then you get. When you turn everything into something that can be done for money, you also splinter groups, and you know you splinter people into individual consumers, and um, instead of, of communities that support each other and that work together, and et cetera, mm. and splitting people into uh, into individual consumers helps per keep the system going uh, because you you do you don't have a whole group of people getting together and maybe threatening the power structure so, so uh, I don't think it's you know I don't think anybody ever sat down and said <laughs> now we want to be sure that we don't you know don't let the neighborhood get together it's just that you know it's something works to keep doing it right well, so so say say someone listening to this is not someone who's experiencing homelessness, but they see someone who obviously is. How do you begin at, on the individual level to bridge that divide? Well, on the individual level, there's you know, uh, as as uh, facing homelessness says, just say hello. Um, and, and, you know, uh, if you meet any stranger, how do you bridge that divide? Yeah, just the same way you would meeting anybody new in your neighborhood. You know, say hello and and talk. And um, this may be somebody who will tell you right away what they need. It might be somebody that you have to you know, who has to learn to trust you before they'll say something 
than they need. But uh, you don't have to worry about it. Yeah. Uh, if and there are a whole lot of people in your life who need things. And sometimes you can help and sometimes you can't. And if you feel guilty every time you can't, you need to work on that. <laughs> uh, I, I think I've only survived 22 years of homeless activism because I'd already done a lot of, of codependent treatment. <laughs> codependent recovery. <laughs> you know, I still get sucked in sometimes. Talk to me about the the, the traumas of, of being homeless and, and the criminalization of homelessness in streets and parks. I, uh, well, again, I personally have not experienced a lot of that because I've, I've got, you know, I still have middle class speech patterns and general appearance, and et cetera. Uh, I, I once was, uh, I went to a, a, uh, a poetry festival in Portland and then, um, I thought that I was going to take the train back that night. Got to the train station, and or it was hey, Portland train station doesn't stay open all night. <laughs> so, uh, so I slept on a bench outside, and in the early morning, there's this tap on the sole of my shoe, and a policeman is standing there saying. You can't sleep here. So I sat up and I explained to him, you know, and I showed him my, I've got my ticket. Uh, I, I'm ready to, you know, go as soon as they open the doors here. I'm from Seattle. I didn't know there was a train station that didn't stay open all night. And, uh, and he was fine, and he was so embarrassed that he went off and did not disturb the uh, black woman sleeping two benches away. And uh, so I felt very good about that. I, I helped protect her. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure she was homeless. But um, that's as close as I ever got to being being harassed. But you must hear but stories. I did, I've, seen, I've heard stories and I've seen a lot. Um, I got very radicalized by my own country <laughs> during the time that I was homeless. Uh, I mentioned sleeping out in uh, the airport, out of the airport. <clears throat> there was myself, there was uh, an adult daughter and her older mother who had a whole bunch of nice looking luggage, but they had that gray pavement look on their face. And uh, their were a handful of of, uh, older, you know, elderly men, all who had boxes tied with twine, or and sometimes the boxes tied with twine were on little uh, roller things, and everybody was 
sleeping there for hours. So I figured everybody that was homeless. And I, I finally dropped off to sleep. And at 4 o'clock in the morning, airport security came around. And they rousted the three black men. They didn't say a word to the white men. They didn't say a word to uh, the three women. They rousted the black men. And, and they said, you can't sleep here. If you need a shelter, we can take you to a shelter, but you can't sleep here. But they didn't bother any of the rest of us. Mm. And um, I, so you go from that, which was relatively, relatively kind, although, uh, you know, it was, very racist, um, to um, a woman who who got up to speak at the gong event yesterday. Uh, she's one of the pe- people who was sleeping in, you know, who was living in an RV. Um, and there were uh, several people in this one uh, RV camp stop, and like she said, we weren't on the street. We were on a piece of, of land that wasn't being used. We weren't bothering anybody. We were off the road, out of the way, not not in anybody's way, not bothering anybody. Uh, but her... Her RV was up on on uh, supports, mm-hmm. and the uh, these police came along, and they knocked the supports out. So the whole thing just goes crash. the uh, The fuel tank <laughs> breaks. And spilled fuel all over, and you know, <coughs> you say they pay a whole bunch of money and come clean that up, and and I can't, you know, and I can't. My RV is wrecked, um, and who has benefited from this? So, uh, and. And again, uh, over and over, uh, you know, I've heard from uh, vendors that uh, they've been swept, their stuff was all taken, their medication was taken, their ID was taken. You know, they they looked everything, you know, and it was all all taken. it, uh, I, I'm just, I'm just pissed off, but I, there is absolutely no, this is being broadcast, so I'm not going to say the F word, <laughs> no, no, 
uh, justification for it. Because everybody knows by this point that there is not enough shelter for the number of people out there. There, and you, and everybody certainly should know by this point that without some form of shelter, people die. If you, if you have someplace better that you can take somebody to, take them. And if you don't, leave them alone. Mm. And I don't care how much it offends your sensibilities. You know, you can live with offended sensibilities better than that woman can live, live without her RV. You can live with offended aesthetics better than somebody can live without their medication. They're you know, it, it, to take away somebody's camping gear just leaves them in a worse situation, a more vulnerable situation than they started in. And the pain theory of ending homelessness does not work. What is the, the pain theory? If you make things miserable enough, people will stop being homeless. It doesn't work. Stupid idea. <laughs> Well, and, and I've heard whatever you, Ben Carson thinks. <laughs> I've heard you say that what's good for the homeless population mm -hmm. is good for everyone. What does that right. mean to you? Right, because if you get everybody, well, for one thing, if you have a public restroom, free public restrooms, everybody benefits. Your tourists benefit, therefore your businesses benefit. Your shoppers benefit, therefore your businesses benefit. Uh, everybody, families benefit, therefore your community benefits. And the homeless benefit. If you have uh, benches where people can sit just if they're tired, everybody benefits. Your elderly benefit. You uh, parents with small children benefit. People with disabilities benefit, and the homeless benefit. So everybody benefits. If you have health care for all, then you've got a healthier community. You also have less. Homeless people dying. And if you if you have housing for everybody, it it's not doing anybody any good to have people sleeping on the street. It's also not doing anybody any good to chase them away. Because they're just going to be sleeping up somewhere else. But if you uh, if you have housing for everybody, then your whole community is clear, you know, the streets are clear, everybody's happy. Um, and also, there's just 
explain the spiritual benefit. We had 42 homeless people die just in the first four months of this year. 32 of those died outside or by violence. It, that is damage to our souls. If we, if we allow that to happen without doing anything about it, our humanity is weakened. It's lessened. We, we uh, a community is, is people who care about each other. Every person that we don't care about weakens our community. So, you know, if you want a strong and healthy community, you got to stop letting people die on your streets. And a strong and healthy community will benefit everybody in a lot of ways. And the final thing is the practical. Um, we're throwing away our most precious resource. Here, buildings do not create people. People create buildings. <laughs> we, when I was homeless, I was in depression. I was sick, physically sick much of the time. I was exhausted all of the time. I was not very productive. Now I am. All of those people out there, you, you, they might seem to be wandering around the great gray fog. So was I. There, all of, everybody has strengths and gifts. Everybody out there right now has strengths and gifts that could be benefiting our community. And they're being thrown away. And we've got to fucking stop that. <laughs> Sorry, I had to swear. I guess the last question that I'll ask you today is what what haven't we spoken about? Ah. Uh, <laughs> There's still a lot. Um, I did want to point out that uh, we wouldn't have homelessness today. We didn't have homelessness once upon a time when anybody who needed shelter could put up whatever structure they could do with whatever they had on mm -hmm. hand. You know, uh, plywood and, and tarpaulins. Uh, whatever. Then we uh, established some stand building standards, and for very good reasons. Like we didn't want Seattle to burn down again, uh, and so we we established some safety codes and, and building codes. Some some of those are reason you know very practical and reasonable. Some of them are uh, very culture-bound, very uh, 
class-bound, like the amount of uh, floor space you have to have. Uh, there, there are you know Japanese who can sleep in the <laughs> drawer, <laughs> um, but but we established these building codes, and we still didn't have homelessness for a while because we also had the federal government investing money in building low-income housing that people could afford. Uh, so people couldn't build for themselves anymore, but the government stepped in and, and built stuff for people. Then, in the 1970s, we started... We uh, got sold on this idea that the, the the government providing these buildings is interfering with the market and the government should get out of that and the government stopped investing in this but the thing is the government was compensating for the government had already interfered in the market by making it impossible for people to build their own cheap housing mm -hmm. uh, so the government building cheap housing for people is a correction. So either go back to the government building cheap housing for people or go all the way back to letting people put up whatever they want for themselves, including tiny houses or tents. Uh, but one or the other. You, you have to either get rid of the building codes or start providing the funding again. So that's, that's one big thing. <laughs> that's one of my main things. Thank you for listening. This podcast is part of the Homeland Project. We invite you to learn more about the project at homelandlab.com. Our work would not be possible without the support of MIGSVR and the Landscape Architecture Foundation's Innovation and Leadership Fellowship. To learn more about the tremendous work of LAF, please visit their website at lafoundation.org. Finally, we want to thank our friends at Yves for the use of their music. You can learn more about the band and find out about their debut album at thesoundofyves.com. <laughs>